great dark one, controller of the night and corrupter of souls. Yes, my hordling? So, me and the folks, I mean, uh, me and the, the zombie union, we were talking, and well, um, uh, we are questioning the necessity of an acid pit in the throne room. Come again? Yeah, it's just, uh, in the monthly workplace safety audit, we found that 90% of our injuries and, uh, re-deaths and please don't take this as an insult, we are grateful for our opportunity to serve the interests of the great shadow of Dalartap and you as his voice upon the plains. But, you know what they say, a happy horde is a productive horde, and 90% uh, of our injuries and deaths come from an acid pit which hasn't been used in over a millennia. It does give a lovely glow, though. That's what I said, but Michael from Accounting was saying that perhaps we could scrap the acid pit and use the cost savings to buy some lava lamps and uh, have health care for each worker. Health care? Bloody health care? You are a zombie horde. You are dead. What use have you for health care? You are sustained by the darkness, by the corruption of souls. Most of you do not even have teeth. Where did you even get the idea of a union from? Uh, the, the Curiosity Project, my liege. What is the Curiosity Project? What are the three things you value most in life? Oh, wow, that's... I mean, there are lots of contenders for the most open and vaguest question I've ever been asked, but that's got to be up there. Because it's not my three favorite foods or my three favorite, you know, the TV shows. Three favorite things that I value in life. Good grief! The mm -hmm. worry is that I've got the, these answers have to be very, very good indeed. But I feel like if I answer wrongly, I won't get these three things. That you know, almost like a wizard's come down and says, "You must choose very, very wisely." I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and regret saying something not as clever much later on. Laughter, family, and beef jerky. Every single time I've asked that question, people say food. Why beef jerky? Well, beef jerky is a wonderful mixture of savoury, lovely, meaty, proteiny, sort of meal-like, stodgy goodness, and sweet snacks. It's the, it's the snack that has everything. It's both chewy and crunchy. <laughs> it's meaty and sweet. The only thing I don't like about beef jerky is it's really expensive. And it has to come yeah. in this really you know, wasteful packaging that includes a little sort of do-not-eat sachet. Uh, it's the same thing that they put in like shoes, isn't it? That that stuff that it's takes the, up the that sun. It absorbs the moisture from the air, so it's very useful. If you ever drop your phone in the toilet, um, you should put your phone not in rice, but in a packet of beef jerky, because apparently that little sachet thing will absorb it and it makes it get better much quicker. It really amuses me that they put a thing on there saying do not eat, because that implies that there's been a court case before where someone has eaten one of those things. Everything else in that packet is really delicious, and so it therefore follows logically that the little sachet should also be delicious, but I follow the rules and, and I'll never know. Tell me a memory which shaped you. I have a memory that literally physically shaped me. You'll notice I have a little scar just here by the side of my mouth, which was caused by a bike accident back when I was 12. Actually, memory perhaps is the wrong word because this is one of the few events in my life that I have no memory of because I fell off my bike and lost 
my memory of the five or so minutes before that. What I remember was I was on my bike near where my house was at the time. There was a little abandoned railway, which was like this sort of valley that goes down and then up very sharply. It's a great place to do stunts on your BMX. It's also <laughs> a great place to go right over the handlebars, land face first, and your body flop the way it shouldn't do over yourself, and then get taken to accident and emergency. I was in intensive care for four days, and I had to have reconstructive work on my face, which has resulted in this little scar that's still there today. And another scar up here that basically makes me Harry Potter. I missed the launch of Channel 5 in the UK. Well, you got it? Oh yeah, I was really looking forward to the launch of Channel 5. There was going to be a big TV special with the Spice Girls singing a brand new song just for Channel 5. People got their TVs and their video recorders retuned just for Channel 5. And I spent it in intensive care. And also, to this day, if I sort of just tickle to the side of my mouth here, it really tingles because my nerves are even now, like more than half my life later, still trying to find their way back. Mm. So that's a memory that quite literally shaped me. What's your favorite color? If I choose one, does that mean I have to eliminate all the others and I'm only allowed to see that one color for the rest of my life? That would be really interesting, but I don't have the philosophical power to do that. So, no. All right. In that case, I'm going to go green. Green, why? It's a bit boring, but I think because if I have to choose a color that I would like to take up most of my field of vision to make me feel nice, green is the one that's most likely to be me in a nice place, like outdoors, looking at, you know, trees, which I'm a big fan of and grass, which I'm a big fan of. And the sky can look a bit green if you squint, I suppose. Take a color like red. If you fill your field of vision with red, ah, stressful. Okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with green, but not because I hate okay. all the other colors. I'll tell you where the plot thickens is, um, you can say to someone, what is your favorite color? But then it depends what that color is gonna be used for. Because even though just a few seconds ago, I said that I liked green, but if the question was, what's your favorite color for a car? Or what's your favorite color for a pet? Well, that's different. <laughs> what is your favorite color a for a pet? Car. Favorite color for a pet? Uh, I was a big fan of my old cat that was a sort of mixture between like black and sort of brownie orange and a bit of white here and there. That's a good color for a pet. But that's a bad <laughs> color for a car. And so on and so forth. Tell me in as much detail as you can about uh -oh. something you knew of which once existed and now does not. These questions, every single one of them, they're all big questions. They're all huge questions that I wish I'd had time to sit at home and study with a magnifying glass. So something that no longer exists. Oh, there's a lot more of those nowadays than there used to be. Um, my partner and I were listening to it. We choosing a radio station when we're doing the washing up and we put on Absolute Radio Morties, which is like a nostalgia music station for songs between 2000 and 2010. And when we put it on, it's a hilarious joke. The idea that something <laughs> so recent could be seen as nostalgic. And it, it occurred to me, halfway through the washing up that there's a lot of people out there that are 10 years younger than me and even younger who unironically listen to this station actually thinking about it as being a long time ago because um, I've mentioned this before something that irritates me on my YouTube channel people will leave a comment saying your videos are so wow they're so amazingly old-fashioned this looks like it was made in 2014 to which I say Fucking what? 2014 <laughs> was five minutes ago. Like only young whippersnappers can imagine that's the olden days. But I'm increasingly realizing that I'm older than I thought. And once you get to your mid thirties, things that in your mind are a couple of minutes ago are actually quite a long time ago and fashions and things really have changed. And nothing makes that more apparent than doing the washing up while listening to absolute radio noughties. Those songs that I keep I still refuse to acknowledge are more than 10 years old, and yet here we are. What, if anything, is perfect? 
nothing nothing should be perfect uh perfect is basically something that you aspire to but um you uh should not expect things to be perfect if you do you will inevitably be disappointed uh, who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind and why i've answered this before a while ago but i'm going to stick with the answer i've already given because i am sure of it my favorite character from fiction of all time is homer simpson and if that sounds like a boring or predictable answer um, watch seasons three to eight of The Simpsons and remind yourself he's he's the best because he's the perfect mixture of realistic, believable, and you like him and you root for him, but he's also really stupid and sometimes really selfish and mean and unrealistic, but also realistic. He's He's just brilliant. And you know what makes him happy and you know what makes him angry and sad. And he's... It's such a simple idea, just a, um, a sort of a family man who's a bit dumb. But he's, oh, I love him. I want to be more like Homer Simpson. I want <laughs> donuts to make me as happy as they make him. What fascinates you? Got loads of things fascinate me. Ooh, um, hmm. There are many things that fascinate everybody, but it's more interesting to think about what fascinates seemingly nobody else apart from me. Something that I do as a rather unusual hobby is I can stare at maps as if they're books, and I can stare at them and get lost in them, if you'll pardon the pun, for hours <laughs> if I'm bored. And I think that's something that not everyone does, and therefore is the better answer. And Thank I've luckily managed to take that extremely geeky little interest of mine and turn it into a sort of career. My YouTube channel is all about maps and geography and urban planning and so on, and so I guess it's useful that I'm already interested in that sort of thing. Where did that come from? Do you remember as a kid looking at maps and being like amazed by them? I don't think there was a single moment. I mean, I had a, uh, I remember there was an old A to Z that was lying around the house that I used to pick up and read as a bored teenager that I, I guess that was the start of me being entertained by maps. So even now I'm sort of ashamed about it because it sounds incredibly geeky. But these days people seem to be not as ashamed as perhaps they once might have been about doing geeky stuff like, you know, guilty pleasures. Things that are incredibly geeky are almost like a badge of pride. And I wish things had been like that when I was a lot younger. I think we'd have all been a lot more relaxed if we were all allowed to be such massive geeks back then. What is your favourite map? Favourite map is the A to Z of London uh, because it's an iconic map and it is the perfect mixture of detailed where it contains everything you could possibly want you know all the streets are named and also it's a paper map not a digital map which means you don't have to zoom in and wait for more information to load it's always there it's always it's so well designed that whether you're staring at it close up or looking at it on the wall far away it's a perfect very beautiful stare atable map and very simple and also very iconic because it's the first map of london that i was familiar with it's how i picture the streets you know if i'm cycling through london and i'm trying to think in my head where am I? The image that springs to mind to make me orient myself is the A to Z, where the A roads are orange, the B roads are yellow, and the built-up areas are a sort of pink colour, and the parks are green. You know, that that's the way I see the world from above. And it's very sad that A to Z, although they're very, very good at making beautiful maps, they're very bad at staying in business and making <laughs> beautiful maps that people actually want to download and use, because they missed a trick. They could have come into the digital era and remained just as iconic now as they've always been. But they fucked up bad. And now A to Z has gone out of business, and I think it's HarperCollins now that makes them. I don't know if they're going to be able to update them. People now, Google Maps is what they use as the default natural map of cities everywhere. And I think it's a pity because Google Maps is just not as pretty to look at. And from my point of view, not as easy to use. So yeah, that's my favorite, the A to Z. I wanted, by the way, to make um, a YouTube video about them. But I thought it would be a missed opportunity not to have the real A to Z publishers 
sponsor the video. And so I got in touch with them and I said, would you be interested? And um, lo and behold, they said that it wasn't for them. And then lo and behold, a year later, they went out of business. So uh, what are you going to do? When I say that I prefer the A to Z to Google Maps, I don't even specifically mean that I prefer the fact that it's on a piece of paper that I can fold and put in the glove box. I have an app on my phone, which very few people have, and it costs me, I think, far too much. It's the A to Z, but on my phone. And you can zoom in and out like it's a digital map, but you just don't have the, um, the same features that you might have on Google. And I prefer that to Google Maps. So it's not the paper that I'm hankering for. It's the actual, the way the map itself looks, whether you're zoomed out or zoomed in. That's why I think A to Z fucked up, because they had an opportunity to be an iconic digital map, and they didn't manage that. What other job would you like to do if you weren't doing what you're currently doing? Well, there's a job that I was for the longest time doing at the same time as doing uh, comedy on YouTube. I was a tour guide in London, and I rather missed that job. The only reason I'm not doing it anymore is because there simply isn't time. But I was working for a company called Small Car Big City, where we used to take tourists around London in classic Mini Coopers. And it's the <laughs> best job in London because you, uh, you pick the, the tourists up from whichever hotel or wherever they're staying, drive them around. And um, I used to tell them all sorts of facts about London and the history and the architecture and so on. My favorite thing to do was to slot in one lie. And I tell them before the tour starts, I'm going to tell one lie about London. And then two hours later, when we finish the tour, you've got to try and guess what was the one lie that I told you. It was loads of fun. And I, I rather miss that job. What is your most prized physical possession? My first guitar. Oh, that sounds incredibly corny in Desert Island Discs. But I, um, my first guitar from when I was seven, I only ever play that guitar when I go back to my parents' house because they've still got it. And it's my favorite guitar I've ever owned. Not just because of the sentimentality, but also because small, cheap, classical guitars, in my opinion, sound better and are easier and more fun to play than proper, professional, big, steel-string acoustic guitars. I use a steel string at my gigs because I have to plug it in and it has to sound professional, but I actually, I rather prefer the sound of a classical guitar, of a nylon string guitar that doesn't cost a lot of money. In the same way that dairy milk chocolate is, you know, supposedly the cheapest and you know it's not proper chocolate i prefer the taste of that to so-called posh chocolate and the same logic applies to guitars i prefer the sound of a cheap nasty guitar than an expensive steel string one or maybe i'm just not buying the right guitars if you could name a hot sauce what would you call it and why if i could name a hot sauce yeah okay i'm gonna cheat because i'm gonna tell you a name for a hot sauce that my sister invented if you mix sriracha with mayonnaise it tastes really good and my sister calls it fuck yeah sauce. <laughs> you your and I need to go, oh, fuck yeah. So we now, in my house, we unironically refer to it as fuck yeah sauce. You know, we'll even say it when we're not in a silly mood, like, like you know, pass the fuck yeah sauce, thank you. Like that. It's very delicious. And then the other day I was in the supermarket and realized that that is a thing you can buy, sriracha mayo. But they don't mix it in the sort of quantities that we do. Basically, like, mostly mayo, but with a tiny hint of sriracha. So it's like a sort of pale orange. Whereas fuck yeah sauce, you get a big dollop of sriracha you get a medium-sized dollop of mayo and it's it's all marbled and it's very spicy and it's very good but that's not i didn't invent that name my sister did so if you were to create a name what would you call it oh well, now that's back to square one fuck yes sauce rather than <laughs> fuck yeah it's the same sauce it's still a mixture of sriracha which i keep mispronouncing by the way and mayonnaise but with let's see um mustard there you go throw in a hint of mustard why not i've never tried it it's probably disgusting but that's my invention I think I'd call my hot sauce Black Heart. Ooh, very on brand, my liege. You've obviously been doing those market readings your wife wanted you to do. 
Why, yes, I have. Thank you for noticing. So there is this kind of trend in online media over the last 15 or so years, probably even about the last 12 years, uh, this concept of edutainment. So what do you think the role of the smaller creator is in edutainment? What are you trying to bring when you create these videos? Well, when I, the reason that I try to make my videos funny is because I think the humor is a good way of making sure that it's more fun to watch, easier to learn, easier to remember. And it irritates me somewhat that you sometimes see people attempting, for want of a better word, edutainment. And the way they do it is they sort of acknowledge, they go, look, the facts that we're trying to tell you, we're sorry, they are really boring and dull, but let's make them more exciting by putting in some silly words and some whizzing noises and to, you know, put these boring things inside fun boxes. Like, best example I can think of of this is um, in the film The Big Short. They have a segment where someone is trying to explain the financial crash and they do it by having this actress whose name I've forgotten. Um, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie in the bath, not wearing any clothes, explaining the financial crash, but she doesn't explain it very well. And the fact that it's a woman in the bath is meant to make it interesting. Uh, it doesn't. Um, what I think you are supposed to try to do, if you do it properly, is to make the facts fun, make the facts interesting, and arrange it so that it's actually the information itself which is making you entertain and making you want to listen and retain and learn. It's very difficult to do, by the way. I, I, you know, I, I try to do it, and it's... Um, I mean, the biggest failing I've seen is Margot Robbie in the bath. You're right, there is a lot of people attempting to make education fun, which, in general, can only be a good thing. Is your comedy inspired by Monty Python at all? Enormously, yeah. I'm a huge, yeah. huge, huge Python fan. And it's sort of... They're such an influence on me that it's very difficult for me to um, shake them. A lot of it is down to... I mean, the reason that my work looks a bit like Python is partly because I'm a huge fan of theirs and I've been, you know, very much molded by them, as has everyone who does comedy in Britain. But also because, specifically, when you're doing animation and you don't have a lot of skill or time, the best way to do it is to move cutouts around and have it match the sound with, you know, bang, like perfunctory sort of movements. And that so happens to look exactly like the style of Terry Gilliam. So it's partly me being influenced by Python and trying to copy them, and it's partly because I have the same restrictions that Terry Gilliam did, and I'm using cutouts. And you know, instead of doing proper lip sync, I'm just having the mouth flap either open and shut with just like a line drawn halfway through the mouth. So <laughs> it ends up looking like Monty Python because we're limited by the same limitations. When I'm doing my animations, I'm not trying to think, let's make it look like Terry Gilliam. I'm just trying to make it look I'm trying to make the animation as good as possible using the limitations that I have. And I've learned the long way around, oh, this is why Terry Gilliam has made these decisions. That's why he has things happen with... I can't think of the proper word to describe it, but, you know, what do you call it when, if you can't animate very nicely and you have to do it crudely with small movements, you are forced to make the movements very short and sharp and have the sound match it perfectly. What's the word for that thing? Because Terry Gilliam does that, and I, I do that as well. Anyway, if there was a word for that, I mean, for example, the uh, opening titles to Monty Python's Flying Circus, there were four different versions, like one for each series, and each one, the movements happen very, very fast and in time in the music. Smash, bang, crash, bop, like that. And that's what makes it so fun to work. You have uh, very overtly in many of your work like dealt with this concept of political apathy. So you have an entire video on it, but you touch on it in other videos. I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about why do you think that, especially when we are more connected than ever before, people turn to 
YouTube or turn to online media sources and like are constantly surrounded by politics that they're kind of no longer interested in it. And what what was in your mind when you were trying to create content that would appeal to that idea? When we made our series called Politics Unboring, um, the idea of that series was to get people who maybe they want to know more about politics but can't find a good, fun way of learning about it. They might be first-time voters. It's a way of just showing them the basic concept. And um, the overall result from that series was meant to be people going, oh, hey, wow, democracy good, get involved, kids. But that was before Brexit and before Trump and before politics started to become really quite poisonous and horrible. Um, the fact that we called the series unboring just goes to show how much things have changed since then because politics no longer needs to be unboring, it needs to be unbatshitted. I don't think people are that, what's the word, apathetic. I, I think um, people's engagement in politics is about the same, but um, because we now have so much social media and so much, it's so easy to find other people who think exactly like you and then to find other people who think ever so slightly differently from you, but they now feel more like an enemy than ever before. That's what's created this rather poisonous atmosphere when it comes to politics. And it's the series that people often ask me, am I going to make any more of? And the answer increasingly is, oh, I don't want to. It's, um, it's become too depressing. Whereas the first few episodes of Politics and Boring had the aim of going, go on kids, voting good, democracy good, yay, get involved kids, in a sort of Blue Peter-like way. The the episodes that came later, the more recent ones, are along the lines of, this is fucking awful. This is bad. <laughs> Can you believe this is really how the system works? And I think I've made my point. I don't, I don't really feel like doing anymore. But I might change my mind. I've said several times that I'm not going to make any more Unfinished Londons, and I ended up making like seven more of them. So who knows? YouTube Analytics has this button where it can show you exactly who's watching. And um, it turns out that my channel is overwhelmingly young. Like the biggest group is people aged between 13 and 20 something. And then something that troubles me rather a lot is that apparently it is a whopping 98% male. And that's very puzzling to me because my videos are supposed to appeal to everybody. And I don't know what I'm doing to alienate half of the planet, but um, apparently that's the sort of people who subscribe to my videos. And the disturbing thing is YouTube themselves don't want to make that any better. YouTube actually prefers it when all of your subscribers are the same type of person. If you can tell advertisers, every single person watching this video is a uh, someone who identifies as male between the ages of 14 and 15 who lives in exactly this part of exactly this country, the advertising is worth a lot more per person. So con- rather counterintuitively, if I was to get a lot more people watching from different countries, different age groups, different genders, the advertising revenue would actually go down. So that's why YouTube, once they find a niche, they keep on you know, chasing after that very one specific person. And I would like my audience to be as diverse as possible, but YouTube would like my audience to be one 13-year-old boy. So do you see then a kind of a difference in the demographics who come to your live shows? Well, my live shows are very different because my career is these two very parallel things where one of them is YouTube and the other one is songs these days mostly for children. So um, at my gigs, my audience tends to be six and seven-year-olds who bring their parents along. And it's actually quite rare that people who know about one side of my career know about the other. You know, a lot of people might follow me for my music and go, oh, I didn't know you made videos about geography and also vice versa. So no, there doesn't seem to be much of a crossover between my YouTube audience and my live shows audience. 
especially nowadays when there's no live shows at all. I hope you're handling lockdown well. Well, it's, it's weird because on the one hand, I'm really missing my family and I'm missing my friends and normal things, like, you know, just going out and about. But on the other hand, you know, there is some silver lining to be found in this rather tragic situation where it feels like the world is having an enormous Sunday, which I think it's needed for a long time. And I'm enjoying the slow pace and I'm enjoying, you know, having my calendar be completely empty and waking up and going, I wonder what I'll have for breakfast now. You know, it's, it's nice to be at this pace. I certainly don't want this forever, but I sort of, I feel a little bit guilty in admitting that I'm rather enjoying it. You know, my partner and I are getting a lot of time to ourselves and a lot of, um, time to work on stuff in the house and admin that wouldn't otherwise have happened. I, by the way, was incredibly lucky with the timing that the lockdown was announced the day after we finished filming our last batch of videos. So I've had nothing but time to edit. So I've been unbelievably spoiled and lucky, but you know, there's much more people out there that have been very unlucky and this is nothing but inconvenient and in some cases tragic. When you're writing your scripts, which you've mentioned before, they're quite meticulously written. Are you purposely trying to kind of hook people onto these larger concepts like recently enough you had uh, a discussion about the existence of god now that probably wouldn't fit inside the politics and boring series but of course you've dealt with the autonomy of small nations intentionally or not in many of your like map man series and and stuff like that so you tend to trend toward these larger topics is that intentional and if so what are the topics that you want people to kind of be hooked onto it's not really intentional, but basically, um, no matter how hard you try when you're writing a script, you will inevitably betray some of your thoughts and opinions. Uh, so Politics Unboring is a good example because we were trying very hard to be neutral at first. You know, it was meant to be uh, material that could be shown in schools that, was, uh, you know, that didn't pick a side. But you cannot write about politics without betraying what your side is. And I did a very bad job of disguising my left-leaning tendencies. Somebody once made a comment about Unfinished London, you know, a documentary about infrastructure, and they said, we detected from this that, um, that you're probably an atheist. And I thought, what the hell? This is a documentary about trains, and you've managed to work out what I think about the existence of a god. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what the hell they're on about, but I guess what that does demonstrate is that whether I want to or not, I do sort of reveal stuff about what I think about things in, in my scripts, and, and why not? I find that there is this tendency among creators to be the objective neutral voice, like this kind of Kantian idea of like, you are a rational free agent and when creating material for rational free agents, you need to make it rational and free of all emotional bias. But that's not true, is it? And it makes it a lot less interesting if it well, was actually, true. When we're writing our scripts for Unfinished London, there's a line that we often like to throw in if it's towards the end of the video, just to wake it up a bit put in the words, in my opinion, like make it sound like I've got something personal to say, which just wakes it up and just makes it sound more interesting and makes it something that you might not otherwise get on the boring BBC. And it might not necessarily be my opinion. It might be something that the co-creator, Paul, and I have concocted that we think makes it sound like you're watching someone's personal journey rather than just a cold documentary. So I think especially because it's YouTube and people tend to feel this might sound very pretentious, but people feel a closer connection to someone doing a video on YouTube than they do to um, a video on BBC Two. And therefore, it's more acceptable to say something like, well, in my opinion, I think this. And it makes it, it just, just wakes it up a little bit, I think. So let's talk about, you talk about this personal reaction. Let's talk about the fan reaction to your work, um, both music and uh, YouTube. 
when you started first getting those comments in, what was your first reaction of people like not only watching, but then responding to your comment? If I do a video that has, you know, 100 comments, 99 of which are positive, the one that I'm going to remember the most and the one that's going to keep me awake is the 100th comment, the one that says something really horrible and nasty because that's what people are like. It's the same when I'm doing my gigs. If 99% uh, of the room is laughing, but there's one guy just sat quietly with his arms folded, he is the one I'm going to remember. He is the one I'm going to be staring at. No, come on, you as well. Why is that? Maybe because humans are predisposed to find the very worst in things. I'm not sure. The, the strange thing about having comments, I remember when I first started uploading stuff to YouTube, I would get an email alert that says, such and such mysterious um, user has commented on your video. And I'm like, oh my God, wow, that's so exciting. A stranger has commented. What does this commenter have to say? And then I'd read it and you know, I'd, I'd reply. And in a way, that feeling still hasn't gone away, even though now like the comments come in, there are literally too many of them to, to read. Like I've now had to turn notifications off and the comments have to be weighed rather than read, but they still matter to me. And I still try to read all of them. And that's why on the day that I upload a video, like I will, I'm basically, I'm lost to the world for a couple of hours, just staring at the screen, watching the comments coming in. And there literally isn't time to reply to all of them, but they still, maybe because I'm such an egomaniac, they, they still mean a lot to me. The fact that a complete stranger has watched something that I worked very hard on and has something to say about it. Like a lot of the time they're fucking morons and they can't spell or punctuate. Um, but, <laughs> But, you know, I still care what they have to say and what they think. Perhaps that's a bad thing, but there you go. What is the comment that you remember the most? The ones that stick out the most are um, I get some parents who leave comments and they say, uh, my kid, uh, he's very young, but he really likes your videos. And he's I get a few people saying that they, um, they've got young kids. Uh, sometimes it's kids with learning difficulties or kids that might be autistic. And they, in particular, uh, seem to enjoy my song where I sing every tube station. And um, a lot of them have learnt the song. And there was one kid in particular who apparently like was very bad at communicating, but this song really cheered him up and it gave him something to focus on. And he's learnt it and can sing it. And his parents are just so happy. And that that that's special. And that makes me feel gooey and warm inside. It, it, isn't it an amazing contrast though? Because you, you say that out of the 99 comments, you'll remember the one that's negative. But when asked, like when I asked you to bring one up, it's always these empathetic special moments that people bring to you that you have created a piece of content that has impacted people in ways that beyond your comprehension that is that's what you remember so maybe it's not a predilection toward negativity but more a predilection toward emotional severity how much and visceral because when a person is writing a hateful comment you can tell that they care uh, or like yeah, you can tell they, that there's an old saying that the, the opposite of love is not hate it's indifference and if someone yeah. is concerned enough and passionate enough to fucking hate something i've done on youtube like <laughs> good for them what is an idea you think you would want everyone to enjoy but you would never make because you'd be not afraid of the reaction but like you would be cognizant that it wouldn't be for everyone well I used to worry that um, if I made a video that was about something too specific and geeky that you know people wouldn't like it and they wouldn't watch it or enjoy it. But I've learned over the last few years that on YouTube, the more specific and the more geeky you get, then the more it actually will appeal to people. If I try to make something that every single person in the universe is going to like, no one's going to love it. But if I make a video that you know compares and contrasts all of the different local authority logos in Greater London, then people will respond better to that than opening, unboxing the new iPhone.
So I guess what the internet has taught me in the last few years is that um, there is no such thing as too specific or too geeky. As long as I do it passionately, then people hopefully will enjoy it. It troubles me that when I make stuff that is, I think, interesting and appealing, like about you know nerdy things like transport and infrastructure and local authority logos, why that seems to appeal to a broadly 13 to 25 male audience, because it should be for everybody, but YouTube has deemed that it's not. You can speculate and you can guess, but you know, um, it's something that I often talk about when I say that I'm an atheist. I am, well, I'm technically an agnostic because you cannot disprove the existence of a god any less than you can disprove the existence of the flying spaghetti monster, but I don't believe in a god for the same reason I don't believe in the flying spaghetti monster, which is that it doesn't have to exist in order to elegantly explain all of life, the universe, and everything. I actually got from your videos the exact opposite. I actually got this kind of sense of a quiet sincerity, almost like London was your church. Ha. And that is interesting. So I, I found it this idea of spirituality inside your videos and this care and deep explanation. So a lot of people of faith will argue that spirituality isn't this idea of like, you know, it isn't a connection to God. It's a connection. People well, find mean, this connection. The word spiritual does a lot of heavy lifting and it can mean any number of different things depending on who you ask. And um, I guess the only thing that my video shows if I have some sort of reverence or fondness for London where I can stand on a hilltop and look at the London skyline and go, oh, isn't it lovely? You know, there's, there's that, that's nice. You can call that spiritual with a very small S if you like, but that doesn't mean I believe in anything supernatural. I think those two things are very, very different indeed. For me, it wasn't, it was never an epiphany. There wasn't like one moment where I suddenly realized, oh, this is the moment I've suddenly realized I don't believe in a God. Like, it's just something that gradually dawned on me when, as I grew up. And um, I don't think I ever took the idea extremely seriously. I think like when I was a kid and I was, you know, going to a Jewish Sunday school, going to Cheder and learning about, you know, Adam and Eve, whilst just a few days before in primary school learning about um, the planets and evolution and so on. As a kid, I was always like, well, these are two different things. And they're, they're sort of both true in their own different, incompatible way. And then at some point, much, much, much later on, I was like, oh, I've just remembered I don't believe in the, the religious stuff anymore. But I don't remember when it happened. And it wasn't a big deal. It's just something I, I don't think I was ever going to take very seriously as a grown-up. You grew up in, in England during like the probably like the 1990s yeah? yeah like yeah as a jewish boy right engaging in jewish tradition and culture when at the time there was like this there was a couple of scandals if you probably know this a couple of scandals of like anti-semitism and like these hatred toward these traditions where you've just kind of grown up did you ever experience that not really i was very lucky and sheltered because uh, when i was growing up in northwest london the majority of my friends were Jewish and the school I was at, about half of them were Jewish. So it was, um, I was very lucky never to experience um, anti-Semitism. In fact, I was quite shielded from racism in general because at my school, people from all sorts of different races and backgrounds and we, we all just got on fine. Like there were some cliques where like, you know, the Asian kids and the Jewish kids and the other kids were just sort of like mixing their own different groups. But I don't remember any animosity between them and I don't remember any racial conflict. And that either goes to show that I grew up in this lovely rainbow harmony world or that I was completely ignorant and none of the uh, prejudices that were happening ever occurred to me. But the short answer is no, I, I don't really remember experiencing anything like that. What was the moment that you realized 
that there was people who didn't like you for something that you didn't even think about. Well, it still hasn't really dawned on. I mean, I mean, you see the occasional bits of anti-Semitism and racism and anti-all sorts on, on Twitter. You know, it's more visible now than ever before. I don't know if there's more of it, but you can certainly see more of it now. I don't really have a very articulate answer for this because I've lived an incredibly sheltered and rather nice bubbly life in multicultural, friendly Northwest London. And it's very clear from your work, by the way, that you you do engage in kind of social justice and stuff. Um, it is clear that you have a political message, and that is, don't be a tit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rather fond of that, yeah. A political message, don't be a tit, yeah. Yeah, like that's... Well, someone, uh, like, I, in my videos about politics, um, I tried as hard as possible to be neutral and to, you know, make it look at a sort of like a Blue Peter news round kind of thing where I don't betray what my real politics are. Um, and yet, try as I might, people can tell that I'm a sort of left-leaning, liberal, um, non-Tory. And people were saying, you call yourself a neutral, and yet you're having a massive go at UKIP. Well, I mean, in my opinion, in order to be neutral, you have to have a go at UKIP because they're extremely dangerous and on the extreme fringes of the right wing. But, you know, everyone thinks themselves a centrist. Everyone thinks that their own opinion is normal and that everyone else is far too much one side or the other. So it's a, it's an impossible um, balance to, to do, to try to be neutral without betraying what you really think of things. Before Brexit, there was this idea of politics being the uh, kind of bastion of rationality. This idea of we design our institutions, and this is what I believe, I'm an institutionalist fundamentally. I believe that rationally designed institutions uh, built with empathy in mind can serve a populace that can in many times be irrational. But then we had Brexit, and then we had Trump, and then we had uh, like the seizure of power in Hungary, and then we had X and Y, and it just seemed that the pillars of our democracy kind of fell down a little bit. I don't think it's unsalvageable, but what I really like about your videos is that they do, at, well, at times when you're saying, well, this is actually a bit naff, you are also saying, but it can be better, it can be fixed. Well, that's interesting that that's how you interpret it, because I think I was actually doing or trying to do the opposite. I was, uh, especially the video about the House of Lords and how that works, uh, what I was trying to do there is to make the true facts about how you get into the House of Lords and what kind of power they have and how undemocratic it is, I just wanted all of those true facts to be laid bare and made look as batshit and hopeless as possible. So that was a, that was actually um, a very easy job where I didn't have to write any jokes for that episode. The jokes were the facts themselves. If you quite simply explain that the best way to get into the House of Lords is to give the Prime Minister money or be born a hereditary peer or be a leader in the Church of England, it, it's insane and it's all true. <laughs> and it's, I find it very depressing and I want other people to find it depressing. In fact, um, politics unboring especially, what we try to do with all of those scripts is make the facts themselves look insane. And we just lay them bare and we, what I want people to do is to watch the videos and think, this has to be bullshit, this can't be true, this is crazy, this is like a comedy show. But then they look all the facts up and it turns out there's no lies in there and they go, holy fuck, we're, we're screwed. That's what I'm trying to do with the, especially the later politics I'm boring, the one about the Prime Minister's questions and how to get in the House of Lords and uh, uh, what was the other one about? Um, basically, I'm, I'm trying to make it look hopeless and awful and batshit. 
quite the opposite of what it was when we started. Why though? Why do you want people to think that politics is boring and batshit? Because surely people because having... I have a, because I have a morbid fascination with the truth. I think um, laying the facts bare and everything looking hopeless and pointless and awful and depressing, I find very amusing. And I think it'll, <laughs> you know, make, put people on their toes and wake them up and make them yearn for better. Who knows? I'm not quite sure the motivation behind it, but I do find how depressing and awful the world is very amusing. Completely understand your position, especially living in the UK during this time must be draining. Brexit, Brexit was the first time that I actually sort of lost hope in democracy. I always used to imagine, well, you know, nothing truly awful could happen here because we have democracy and therefore correct things will happen and we will move to the correct side of history. You know, and, But Brexit was the first time I realised actually we we deserve what we get and this whole like decades of prosperity and normality were fragile and on borrowed time and if it's perfectly possible for democracy to produce brexit or trump or bolsonaro or all the other things that have happened around the world it's not something to be really happy about at least that's how i, feel. I hope i'm proved wrong i hope this is a blip but you know it's not a good time to be hopeful and positive about democracy not in britain anyway Ireland is putting us to shame with these, you know, really lovely, happy referenda with the correct result over and over again. But in Britain, it's it's Brexit and the Tories. Yeah, I was just about to mention that, like, apathy and democracy doesn't make sense where I'm from. So, like, Ireland is sandwiched between the UK and the US, both places where political divides have literally torn the fabric of politics apart. We had like so much positive politics because of this rational debate. I mean, the most divisive our country got was during the Eighth Amendment referendum, people putting up posters, actively calling other people bad. But even then, the minute that the, the, uh, the democratic process happened, that was it. Well, this that is was the it. thing. Like, as soon as you um, turn something into a referendum and you make it official, you're on one side or the other. The two sides that never realized before that they hated each other suddenly become really um, nasty about each other. And uh, for example, I would occasionally, I get gigs in these really uh, rural and quite, uh, what's a polite way of saying it, these backwater places <laughs> that I used to find quite charming and funny. And nowadays when I go there, I get my back up because I think, oh, I'm in Brexit land. Now that's a division that didn't used to exist, but Brexit hasn't solved anything. Because, I mean, you know, by the way, we still haven't actually left the EU in any practical sense. And so the debate is still ongoing. The country is still divided. And now if I meet a new person, I wonder, oh, which side are you on? Are you on the good Remain side or the bad Brexit side? And that is a division that didn't exist before this referendum. So that's a pity that, you know, even though it's I, I don't take lightly the fact that I want to override a you know unarguable democratic decision that this country made narrow though it was um the best we can hope for is that it's very slow before they do anything and by the time these important decisions have to be made the country really has changed its mind i think the referendum was lost in the years running up to it when all these euroskeptic newspapers that have far too much power and influence were making people who didn't previously give a shit about the european union they made it into a scapegoat and so i'm not bemoaning the democracy, I'm bemoaning the ingredients that went into 
the democracy. What do you think the role of the media should be? And what do you think the role of new media as opposed to old media? That's a very big question, implying that they have a, a role that they should have when no one's going to enforce this. The reason that I'm making these videos on YouTube is not, it's not because someone's told me to or because I think that uh, there's an important role that must be played. It's because I find it fun, I find it entertaining, and I think if other people choose to watch the videos and enjoy themselves, or even better, if they choose to you know, show it to their geography students, then that's very nice, that's very nice for them. But I don't think that's because I have a, or you know, people who create the same sort of stuff that I do, it's not that we have a, a role, it's that I think teachers now are very lucky that there are so many resources, more than there used to be. And I'm very glad to, to do my bit, to throw in some, for want of a better expression, some edutainment. I suppose we can have the acid pit removed. Only, do those lava lamps have real lava within them? I, uh, I, I don't think so. I can check, but, uh... Double spending on the torture cellars, and fine, you can have it. Oh, happy day. Um, I mean, um, yes, my fist of the night. Uh, it is an honor to reap the rewards of living, uh, unliving, uh, by your side. <laughs>